I'm Gregory Berg. If you are a listener to public radio and WGTD, then there is a pretty good chance that you might also be a fan of the television game show Jeopardy. And if you are, then you are probably aware that right now there is an exciting Tournament of Champions underway in which some of the finest players to recently appear on the show are going head-to-head in truly thrilling fashion. I thought in honor of the Tournament of Champions that is currently airing on Jeopardy, it would be fun to go back into the archives and replay for you an interview which dates all the way back to 1997 the year that a biology professor from the University of Wisconsin Parkside, Dr. Greg Mayer, appeared on Jeopardy. The host of this particular segment of the morning show is the gifted man who created the show and who also served WGTD very ably as our news director for many, many years, my colleague and good friend, Bill Guy, who sadly passed away in 1998. Again, from 1997, Here is a conversation about the game show Jeopardy. Enjoy. This is Jeopardy. Now entering the studio are today's contestants. A bookseller originally from Anderson, Indiana, Kathy Hoagland. A university professor from Racine, Wisconsin, Greg Mayer. And our returning champion, a part-time consultant from New York City, New York, Laurent Rusekis, whose one-day cash winnings total $6,395. And now, here is the host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. No, it's not Alex Trebek, and this is not Jeopardy. It is the morning show here on WGTD. And uh, I'm Bill Guy, your host uh, on the morning show today. And joining me is the young man who you heard introduced second on that uh, intro to the Jeopardy! program from this past Friday, Greg Mayer. Greg is an assistant professor of biological sciences at UW-Parkside. He's been with us a couple of times before, and we've talked about ponderous scientific uh, issues such as uh, DNA and science and pseudoscience and life on Mars. Well, today, it's not going to be quite as ponderous, if you will. We're going to have some fun and hear what it's like to be a contestant on one of the big game shows. Actually, it's the best game show that's out there. Greg, I don't know if you strike me as a game show type. How did you get involved in this? How did it start? Um, it's fairly unusual, actually. Um, I actually have not watched Jeopardy in a number of years. In fact, since moving to Wisconsin uh, in about 1992, uh, because it's on at 3.30 in the afternoon here, and I'm still at work. Prior to that, though, I had been uh, a regular watcher when I lived in Maryland when it was on at about 7 in the evening. I used to watch the show fairly regularly, uh, and people would sometimes say, oh, you should be on Jeopardy. And, and we did once write to them and say, well, how do you get on the show? And, and they send you a postcard back saying how you do that. Um, but what happened with my getting on the show is that, uh, as I said, I haven't watched the show in a number of years just because of the time of day that it's on. But my sister-in-law, who lives in Virginia, watches the show. And she heard, by watching the show, that they announced they're having a contestant search in Chicago. So she sent them my name and address. And so out of the blue, last September, I got a letter from Jeopardy saying, if you want to try out to be on the show, call this number to arrange your test and interview in Chicago. So that's what I did. Um, And I was somewhat lucky to do that, not just because my sister-in-law did this without my knowing it, but also, they get many more names sent to them than they can possibly mm-hmm. uh, test and interview. And so of the names that were sent to them, there was some random drawing among those names sent. And so I was chosen by that random drawing of people who put their names in for the Chicago tryout. And uh, that's how I got, got started. So I called the number and set up the interview in Chicago. What was the interview like, and how many people had they called? Um, the exact number, I'm not sure. The uh, the number in the, the that were present at the time I was there was around 80 to 100, and they did at least a couple, maybe a few of those sessions a day, and they did it for five days. So we're talking about several hundred to maybe even a thousand or or, or a little bit over a thousand people. And uh, in the session I was, I said there was somewhere close to 100 people. Um, they give you a test. It's a 50 question test. Um, it covers 50 different categories. For those who uh, watch Jeopardy know that there are all the different categories that the, that the questions are in. And uh, for this test, they're in 50 different categories. Um, they're among the more difficult questions. What they say, they're $800 or $1,000 questions mm. on the 50-question test. 
and um, all 80 to 100 people took the test. Uh, Alex Trebek actually administers the test by tape. He's, he's <laughs> present on videotape administering the, the, the test. And um, so everyone takes it, and then the, uh, uh, the production assistants or producers, or I'm not quite sure what their title was, who were there, the Jeopardy uh, personnel who mm -hmm. were there, then quickly grade the tests. And anyone who scored 35 out of 50 or better um, is then interviewed. Um, and in my group of 80 to 108 people scored oh, really? uh, 35 or better. Um, and based on what the questions were, I, was, I pretty much knew I'd gotten at least 35, but I wasn't quite sure how large a, a group would, would get it. Um, some of the questions were fairly difficult. And um, then the eight remaining people were interviewed. And they were... Um, uh, we were asked questions about, well, tell us what you do, um, what would you do with the money, and that sort of thing. And they ask you these questions sort of standing up to see how you would react in sort of the game situation where Alex Trebek asks you those kinds of questions. Um, uh, we filled out a form, you know, a long form, you know, saying, you know, well, where you went to school, any interesting stories about yourself, and all sorts of things like that. And then we played sort of a quick version uh, of the game where they didn't have... Uh, television monitors with the questions such, but one of the assistants would hold up the question and you would try and answer it and, and they had like little buzzers to ring in and that kind of a thing. And then based on that, having passed the test and then based on that little interview, they decide whether or not they want to ask you on the show. Um, they told us later on that in fact they usually decide pretty much right then and there who they want to, mm -hmm. but they don't officially notify you until later um, when they give you a call and say, okay, be in Los Angeles or Culver City, to be precise, on such and such a date. That's when we want to film you. Um, and I suppose they don't tell people right away, in part because they don't know how many contestants they might need over the course of a whole year. And so rather than telling people no, I think what they do is they uh, um, just use the ones. They may rank them, perhaps, and then maybe towards the end of the, of the, of the season, depending on how many uh, contestants they need. They don't know exactly how many, so they don't know exactly at the time who will get on and who will not. So do you have to fly to California and stay at your own expense? Yes. Um, um, many people who have talked to me have said <coughs> mistakenly that they thought that, uh, that they cover your expenses. But in fact, they cover none of your expenses whatsoever. Um, the only expense they cover is uh, maybe lunch on the day that they're taping. <laughs> um, if, and, and I say maybe because if you've been on earlier in the day, they, 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 they begin taping fairly late, it's around noon or maybe a little bit after that they begin taping, and uh, lunch is at 3 o'clock. If you've been on, on an earlier taping and have lost, you don't get lunch. Only, only, if, you're still, only if you're still around for a later taping do you get, you, do you get the lunch. So they kind of minimize their, their expenses uh, with regard to the contestants. That's how Merv Griffin got to be a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly, I guess. Uh, Although it wouldn't cost them very much but uh, for a lunch, but nonetheless. Uh, so it was uh, September when you went down to Chicago and went through the, the, the test and the interview. That was all one That, that one was day. all in one day. That all occurred in about two hours. Oh, really? Um, the, the, the test itself is kind of like game conditions in that you see the questions being you know, on the screen, and Alex is actually say, doing it on tape, reading them to you. And you only have a few seconds to answer it. So even though it's 50 questions, it's not like you have 50 minutes for it. Mm -hmm. uh, the 50-question test uh, was only a few seconds per question. Um, so the whole thing, the whole test only lasts a few minutes. The longest time it takes is for them to grade it, actually. It takes them about a half hour um, um, to go through and, and check all the answers. So then how long after that was it you heard from them and with the word that they wanted you to be a contestant? Uh, relatively quickly. Uh, I heard about the middle of October, so that's about a month later. Um, maybe just a little over a month later, um, that I heard from them that uh, they called and uh, and wanted me to be in Los Angeles uh, for November, for a November taping, a mid-November taping. So you had about another month? Had about another month, and, and that's what they told us. They'd said that you would get about a month uh, notification ahead of time um, as to when they wanted you to be on the show. Um, for me, this was... Uh, uh, good because since I'm teaching uh, a regular schedule of classes to be able to make some sort of arrangements and it actually turned out be, to be fairly uh, uh, fortunate the exact dates they wanted me because it coincided with uh, a week of the semester in which I was giving exams 
um, because exams usually come on a fairly regular, you know, mm -hmm. one-third of the way or two-thirds right. of the way through, and it was on a fairly regular schedule, and I do not physically need to be present to administer an exam. A colleague can administer an exam for me, and fortunately, it happened to fall right during an exam week, so I was able to get away for uh, four days during that week, uh, actually three days during that week, to, uh, to get to California and, um, and not have too much of a problem. Sometimes that is a problem for people, and uh, they do actually, at least in, for the one contestant who was in my group, they did go out of their way to try and get him on the show. They wanted him, apparently. He, he had been selected. This was a doctor who won several times last week, and he just had other th important things as a, as a, as a, a pediatric oncologist. He had mm. many important duties, uh, and he just couldn't make it. And finally, the third date they proposed to him, um, he was able to make it, and he had thought that they'd given up on him, but they kept calling him back and saying, okay, how about this time? And he finally got on. Uh, fortunately, I was able to make the, the show that they, uh, uh, that they uh, first wanted me on. So you had a month. Did you prepare? Did you study? Um, a little bit. Um, and it, I, I don't think it helped at all. Uh, <laughs> the, um, um, I prepared in a few ways. Um, First of all, actually, ever since I, I had uh, knew that I was going to go to the uh, test and interview in Chicago, what I began doing was taping the show in the afternoon and then watching it in the evenings or perhaps catching up on the weekend if mm -hmm. I wasn't able to watch it every evening. And that actually did help. Um, there were two or three questions um, on the test that I got right simply by having watched um, a few weeks' worth of shows, uh, you know, reminding me of things that perhaps I might have forgotten or perhaps even uh, making clear things that I'd been confused about, such as, you know, which president number was Van Buren and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, and that actually helped. But on the show itself, uh, the studying didn't help. But I did uh, help, uh, study a little bit. Um, I um, began eating breakfast off my daughter's placemat from years ago, showing a map of the U.S. and the capitals. And so I <laughs> relearned all the state capitals, because that's actually a fairly uh, popular Jeopardy category, is state capitals. Oh, yeah. um, and um, I did look at uh, uh, a book on Shakespeare's plays and the American presidents, because these are very, very popular mm -hmm. topics. And uh, a friend Xeroxed a bunch of brief summaries of Shakespeare and the most important lines and that sort of thing and gave it to me, and I, and I looked at that. And a colleague at Parkside um, gave me uh, a book called How to Bluff Your Way Through Literature. <laughs> Which is very popular. I'm uh, sure very popular freshman, amongst freshman freshmen, yeah. freshmen uh, uh, <laughs> in literature courses, uh, and it was sort of uh, a ever so brief summary of you know the titles of books and who wrote them and and one or two sentences you could say about them to impress people at parties. That was sort of the intent of the book: is how to make people at parties think you know literature. But again, it was sort of reminding me of things that perhaps if I'd known before, I'd forgotten. Um, uh, about you know who the great authors were and that sort of thing, but ultimately it didn't. None of that studying helped at all. I, I don't know. And having now, although the taping was in November, having seen both shows again, uh, there was not a single thing I studied or <laughs> learned in studying that I answered correctly on the uh, on the two tapings that I was on. So you show up on the appointed day, and what time did they want you there? Did they tell you what to wear? Anything like that? Yeah, they ask you to bring three changes of clothes because they tape five shows a day. They, oh. they, they tape for two days during a week, during a taping week, and they don't tape every week because they sometimes, some weeks they're around the country finding contestants, mm -hmm. and like on Christmas and New Year's and such, they don't tape, or Thanksgiving because it's hard to get people to come to California at that time. But during a taping week, they tape for two days, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, at least uh, usually, and they tape five shows a day. So the person who wins the first show of the day has to change their clothes quickly between shows uh, because there's only about 15 minutes between shows really? uh, for the next show because, of course, it goes out on the air as though it were the next day. Mm -hmm. And Alex sometimes makes remarks about, you know, oh, I like your tie today. But in fact, of course, he <laughs> changed his tie just 10 minutes earlier uh, very quickly in, in a dressing room. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they ask you to bring three changes of clothes. Um, most men, anyway, tend to wear ties and jackets, but um, that's not a requirement. In fact, they said that, that they kind of prefer people to be a little more casual if they can. And in the second group of contestants who came on the Wednesday, uh, I was held over from Tuesday to Wednesday because I had won on, on the last day on Tuesday. 
Um, one of them did not uh, have a tie on. Um, the women tend to dress, you know, sort of similarly. They're not not in jackets and ties, of course, but um, you know, fairly formal attire. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they said casual business attire or something like that was the phrase. The phrase they used, and by change of clothes, most of it was like changing your tie and maybe your jacket. It wasn't like people got completely undressed and mm -hmm. redressed. Um, uh, so that's how they 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 want you to dress. So if if you got held over, you were on two shows and you got held over. You must have sat through four shows before for, taking four that, shows that, that, before you were up. That's right. It's actually a fairly long day. The uh, uh, we arrive at the studio at about ten o'clock in the morning, and I had found a found a hotel um, very close, about a mile away, um, by using actually a a, a computer disc, a, a CD that uh, you know sort of lists. It's a triple A thing that sort of lists you know hotels mm -hmm. of America. Uh, and found one closest to the Sony Studios, which is where it's where it's held. Most other people didn't find this. There was one other woman there, but most people were driving some distance from the airport, actually, to paying a lot in cab fares, actually, to get to the studio. But I was able to walk to the studio. It was only a mile away. Uh, we get there about 10 in the morning, and there's a long orientation in which they, uh, uh, you fill out some more forms. Um, they brief you about the game. You get to go out onto the uh, studio set to see what it's like. Mm -hmm. The stage manager gives an extensive introduction to, like, you know, where the cameras are, where you should be looking, what lights to look for, that sort of thing, um, what the buzzers are, how they work, and things like that, how to write your name so that it appears properly on the little podium below you, how to write in your bets for the for Final Jeopardy, and a lot of details like that. And then there's sort of a brief. Uh, a practice game. In fact, it's a full practice game, but you, but not everyone gets to do it. They have about 13 people, and all 13 are run through one game, so that everyone plays um, somewhere around a quarter of a whole game, um, practicing ringing in and that sort of thing. And they have one of the one of the production people sort of stands in for Alex, sure. pretending to be him, reading out the questions and that sort of thing. Now, is that run through with? With the lights on and the cameras and the, the whole... The lights are on, the cameras aren't running, okay. or at least I guess I'm not sure if the cameras are running because I can't see the monitors. It's possible the cameras might be practicing at this point. I, I kind of doubt that they would because I think they they pretty much know how to work the cameras sure. by this time. Um, uh, but the, all the lights are on. It's it's under pretty much the, the same conditions, game conditions. Game conditions. Um, and so you get a few questions. Uh, at least under game conditions. Mm -hmm. It's not a whole game, but it's like maybe a quarter of a game you get to play uh, under game conditions. And they will switch people in and out um, after someone's had a, you know, several tries, and they'll, then they'll let them in. What's the physical layout and size of the Jeopardy set? It's, um, it's in a, uh, uh, a stage, or I'm not quite sure what you would call it, um, but there are these enormous buildings. Uh, it's the... the uh, uh, Sony Picture Studios, I believe, is the old MGM Studios, is what it formerly was. And you have essentially huge buildings and largely narrow alleyways running between them. And inside these huge warehouse-like buildings, they're sort of like corrugated steel. Everything is done inside them. And everything is much smaller, sort of built within them. So you have like rooms and buildings within these huge, within these huge studios. And so, for example, at the, uh, the Jeopardy set, you'd open one very large door, and you go in, and then there's like almost a separate little building in there, which is the green room, which is where the contestants say it's not actually green. But that's a, a small room, like a little lounge and a place to hang your coat, and they have a table with coffee and donuts, and there's a bathroom in there and a little makeup uh, uh, mirrors and table where the makeup person does your makeup and that sort of thing. And that's where you wait between... Uh, uh, well, while the orientation is going on and afterwards and that sort of thing. Then the, the set itself is, a, is somewhere inside, again, this huge mm -hmm. building. And I don't know quite how much of the building it takes up because you can't sort of see behind the set, but you can look up and see the ceiling high and far away with many lights and all sorts of things up there. Now, many of them are set up to use on the set. The set itself, though, is... Um, Oh, a hundred feet across, or something, or maybe a couple, a hundred feet by a hundred feet, or something like that. It's not right. an enormous set. And then there is a, a, a an audience setup, a mm -hmm. studio audience setup, which is not as large as you might think by the the sounds of the crowd. Either the microphones are good, and they do encourage the people to cheer and clap loudly. But the audience isn't very large. Um, maybe a hundred people, maybe not that mm -hmm. many. Um, 
and but of course everything stops at the edges. I mean, they never pull the camera back to show you that there's a whole bunch of lights and wires and such right. trailing away just to the side of everything. That's true. Everything that you they only have fixed up what you actually see. Aside from that, it's all very practical things. You know, the lights, booms, supports, mm -hmm. wires. It's not uh, a complete room. It's just sort of a uh, one side of a room, so to speak, the side that Alex is standing on, the contestants are standing on, so it forms sort of a, a maybe a semicircle, and the other mm. side of the semicircle is unfilled. That's where the cameras are, and that's not, not uh, set up very So how fancy. far away are the contestants from the, the screens where the yeah, questions show it's, up? It's actually pretty far. Um, I'm glad I brought my glasses when I went. <laughs> um, Oh, I'd say it's uh, at least 30, 40 feet uh, away from from, from the screen. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair distance. Um, and uh, they are big monitors. I'm not quite sure of the size. And they are Sony monitors, too, appropriately enough, since it's Sony <laughs> Studios. Uh, they, they do have these big Sony monitors. Maybe they're 25 or 31 or 32 inch. I didn't oh, don't really? know. But they're quite large. So it's not really difficult to see. But nonetheless, if you do, need if you do wear glasses, you do need them. It's not so close up and so large that, um, that, that you could uh, dispense with your glasses, if you need glasses for distance. Of course, when the, the, the each portion of the game begins, there's the array with the, the categories and the questions. Mm -hmm. Does the question, do you read the question off the individual monitor where it appears, or is there like a, if you will, a master monitor that has that question only? Yeah, no, there is no master monitor in that way. You're reading it off the board, off that array where okay. you see it is, uh, is where you're reading it from. For the studio audience, they have two large monitors to either side of the set. And because their view is partially blocked by the cameraman and things like mm -hmm. that, so for the studio audience to see what's going on, they do, they do have uh, two very large monitors to the side. These might be 50 or 60-inch screens. They're enormous um, that they can see. But the contestants can't see them. The contestants are, are reading the questions or the answers, actually, off the, uh, off the screens on the array, the same one that... Uh, uh, is shown at the beginning of each cat, each uh, section of the show. How is it decided where you would be out of that group of, I think you said, 13 people who yes. were there for that taping? How is it decided where you would appear? Um, there's, uh, it's random except for one constraint. That is that people who have been brought back from a previous day get to go first. Oh, okay. Um, at least by and large. For example, in my group of 13, um, all of us except one were from outside of Los Angeles. The one person from Pasadena had been there the week before and had been called back. So he got to go first on the first show so that he did not have to then come yet another day. This would mm -hmm. have been his second or third day if he had to come back again. So they made sure that he got in. Similarly, um, for my second day of taping, there were three of us left over, myself and uh, as the champion for that last day and then two others. And all three of us, I, of course, was the champion, and the other two also got to go first the next day. Uh, that was the, the show aired here Monday. Um, but otherwise, it's random. Um, and in fact, the Jeopardy people don't pick it. There's um, some other company, and I don't know their name, um, which is in, designed to ensure their compliance with fairness. And it's an independent company. I think this is a reaction... Hmm to uh, the scandals many years ago, sure. like on the $64,000 question, that sort of thing. And so they're very conscious of making sure that everything is very fair, and they, they take great effort to make sure that everything is fair. And part of that is that, that I believe it's this other company, which again, I don't know the name of, they actually pick the names at random. You know, they, the, some representative of this company, I think literally how it goes is, is given uh, a stack of cards, and he shuffles through them and picks the names. Um, and, and that's how it's done, and then hands them back to the, to the, to the Jeopardy person. Um, so they don't know what, you know, we don't know and they don't know, except for that one constraint that they don't want people to, you know, to uh, have to keep coming right. back day after day after day. Aside from that constraint, it's, uh, uh, they, it's random. Um, again, we don't get to meet this person. In fact, they probably wouldn't want us to meet this sure. person. Um, but, you know, they say it's random. They come back with the cards, you know, the three cards that had been selected with whosoever name is on it. Um, and that's the person who's picked. And they do a similar thing also with what the categories are, what questions are. For every day uh, that they're taping, for every, every show that they're taping, um, they prepare at least two complete sets of, of categories, two sets of questions or answers. And again, it is randomly selected for them which show will go on a particular day. 
uh, on a particular taping, again, so that there can't be any kind of uh, matching or collusion between mm -hmm. who's going to be on and what, what the categories are. Um, people who were watching last week may have, for example, noticed that there was a woman from Milwaukee on when the category was Wisconsin cities. Th that was, again, just by <laughs> luck chance. Luck of the draw. Luck of the draw. Um, just as uh, it was my luck of the draw on Friday that one of the categories was islands, which is mm -hmm. something I know a lot about. Um, uh, you might get something that matches, but you might not. And they, they, they go to great pains to make sure that it's very fair and random in, in, um, in terms of what the questions are and who the contestants are. We're talking today here on WGTD with Greg Mayer, an assistant professor of biological sciences at UW Parkside. And uh, Greg has uh, just completed, well, we have just seen, I should say, uh, him on the Jeopardy quiz show. For uh, He was there Friday and again yesterday. And uh, Greg, I, I jotted down the categories uh, for your second round in the first program. I don't have them for the first round. Was there anything that uh, when you saw it up there you said, this one's going to be a snap or I'm in trouble? Um, yeah. In, in fact, I, even when, when I watch the show on, on television, um, I traditionally either cheer, groan, or say, eh, uh, when, it, when, it, when a category comes up. Um, um, I haven't reviewed the, the, the categories um, that were for me. For example, I mentioned Islands was one of the categories. Mm -hmm. When that one came on, I said yes. <laughs> um, when opera came on, I said, uh. That was in the same group? Uh, that was in the same group. Right. Um, although, luckily on that, the very last question on that, the $1,000 question on opera, um, in fact, was an island question. The, the question essentially was, who is the most famous opera singer from New Zealand? Which I knew the answer to, right. not because I'm a fan of opera, but because I know about New Zealand. <laughs> so it was like having an extra question in the island category. Um, you know, again, some categories, astronomy. Well, that's a pretty good one for me, although I did not actually do all that well on it on the show, again, because another person was able to ring in ahead of me on that one. Um, the category, um, women directors. I did terrible on it. In right. fact, uh, that was on the first show that I was on. And of the three contestants, two of us didn't have a clue. I think didn't even attempt to ring in on any of those. And, and uh, uh, the third contestant, the person who was leading going into Final Jeopardy, uh, it was very close until that category, because the last category came. And then she got virtually all of them and, and had a fairly large lead going into Final Jeopardy. On day two, though, you cleaned their clock on soul and funk singers. Yeah, yeah, that was a surprisingly <laughs> good one for me. Uh, I wasn't expecting uh, to, that to be uh, a good one for me, but it did turn out to be that uh, uh, I perhaps surprised myself with my knowledge of soul and funk. So once you were on, on stage and it was time to start the, start the taping, how did you feel? What was going through your mind? Um, let me just mention one thing before sure, that got on, is that in the... Um, in the practice round, I had done terribly. I wasn't able to ring in successfully once. So I realized that whatever I was doing to try and ring in didn't work um, because everyone could beat me. In fact, there was one person in particular, one person who I wound up playing against, beat me every time. About mm. 10 out of 10 beat me. Um, so I realized that the strategy I was using was, was, was wrong. And so I was very nervous, therefore, after the practice round. I figured, I don't stand a chance. Um, and so through the taping of the first couple of shows, I was watching intently and thinking, how can I possibly figure out a strategy for ringing, ringing the buzzer? Because the way the buzzer works is that you cannot ring in until Alex finishes reading the clue. Oh, really? If you ring in too early, not only does it not count, it also disables your buzzer for something like two-tenths of a second. So you can't ring back in immediately. And... Um, to know when Alex has finished reading the question, a set of lights goes on next to the array of monitors on which the questions appear or the answers appear. And that set of lights goes on based on a judge sitting at a table in front of the audience behind the camera. He's listening to Alex. When Alex finishes reading the question, he presses a button. That button turns on the lights and releases the block on the buzzers. So we can't ring in until after he does that. And so what I was doing during the practice round was I was looking intently at the lights, waiting for them to go on and then hitting, and I was using my index finger because your index finger is faster than your thumb. That's, that's a known fact. Um, <laughs> and it didn't work at all. Hmm. And so the first couple of shows that they were taping, and so I was very glad not to be picked for the first show because mm -hmm. I realized I hadn't a clue how to ring in. Um, if, so I, I was glad not to be picked. 
And so I decided to make two changes. One is that I would use my thumb uh, against the better advice of, of people who know better than I that your index finger is faster, but it just felt more comfortable holding it with my thumb. And I decided I'm not going to pay any attention whatsoever to that light. I realized that I, I perhaps just don't have the reaction time to work on the light, but what I began doing was reading the question along with Alex. And so when in my head I got to the last word I rang in, what I did therefore was eliminate the judge's reaction time from the circuit of getting in. And it was just my reaction time. And that worked. I mean, I didn't know it would work until I got on the show, uh, or that is onto the, mm -hmm. they were actually taping, but it took me two shows of sitting there and thinking about it and watching what other people were doing and trying to look at the lights and see what the speed was and thinking about it that I came to the decision to, to work that strategy. So my nervousness went down actually much after deciding on that strategy, even though I knew it wouldn't work. Uh, well, I didn't know it would work, but at least I had something other than what I knew didn't work, which was to use my index finger and look for the light, which didn't work at all. Um, so I was nervous, though, then, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But once you're on the stage, once you're up there, um, you sort of forget about everything else. Um, I wasn't paying any attention to the cameras, wasn't paying any attention to the audience, um, didn't know that there was a famous TV personality 20 <laughs> feet away talking to me. Um, and you just concentrate very much on what's going on around you. And I was especially unnervous on the first show, actually, um, where I only realized, having watched it again for the first time on Friday, that I was doing rather badly to begin with. Uh, you know, I was, mm -hmm. I was not, not doing real well. And uh, it didn't bother me at all at the time, because I was kind of just happy to be there. <laughs> um, and of the 13 people in my original group, there had only been two winners so far. And so six had gone down without winning a thing. And so I felt that there was no shame in, you know, in, in, in going down. So I, uh, uh, I wasn't really that nervous. Um, and you're not paying any attention to the cameras, not paying any attention mm -hmm. to the audience. You're not awed by Alex or anything at this point. And in fact, for some categories that are particularly good ones, um, you, you can get into a groove where you're just hitting them, ringing them one after another, getting in. Um, some of the other contestants clearly got into this as well, that I could see that, that if they got a good category, they were just, you know, keying on mm -hmm. it, boom, one after the other, one after the other, running the whole category, getting five or maybe four out of the five mm -hmm. um, in, in the category. And um, in watching basketball games uh, on TV, you sometimes hear an announcer say that um, someone has gone unconscious. Uh, John <laughs> Starks of the Knicks is someone I've heard about that said that John Starks has gone unconscious because it just heaps, keeps hitting three-pointer after three-pointer. It's like he's not looking, doesn't know what's going on around him. And that's what it's like. You sort of go unconscious. You get in the groove. You're focused only on that, that screen. You're looking at that screen, getting the question, and buzzing. And, and all nervousness goes away in that situation. Hmm. It seemed to me, watching the, the two shows, that you did do much better answering questions the second day than you did the first. In fact, I, I didn't count, but the first day, you may actually have answered fewer questions correctly than the other two contestants. Um... That's possible. Okay, I don't. Um, I, I didn't add it up, but I, I did much better in the in the first show. I did better in double jeopardy than in single jeopardy, and since that's worth twice as much, you can answer half as many questions correctly, but score just as many mm -hmm. dollars um, by doing that. Whereas in the second show, yeah. I did much better in the first right, jeopardy round, where strong. they're worth only half as much, and so I had a large lead after that. But then it was kind of even. Uh, in the double jeopardy, and uh, uh, my nearest uh, opponent at that, at that time uh, actually caught up and passed me at one point, and then I had only a narrow lead going into, uh, into final jeopardy there. But you're right, it's not just how many you get right, but whether it's in the final, the, sorry, the double jeopardy round or, or the initial jeopardy round, and how much they're worth. You know, the, the thou getting $1,000 question is worth $1,000 yeah. questions. <laughs> Let's... Um we have the tape of your uh, your final Jeopardy round from the first show, and uh, going maybe Alex is going to tell you this, but just in case they don't, uh, the uh, first contestant was named Laurent. He had forty nine hundred dollars. Uh, Greg had seventy three hundred, and Kathy had ten thousand. And so I tell you, why don't we just go to the the tape right now? This is uh, final Jeopardy from Friday's Jeopardy program uh, with uh, Greg Mayer, one of the contestants. 
Category is flags as we wrap up the week. Let's take a look at the answer, and then our players will have 30 seconds to come up with their response in question form. Here it is. This saint's cross appears on the provincial flag of Nova Scotia. Good luck, players. our way up the line, starting with you, Laurent. You had 4,900, and your response was, what is the cross of Lorraine? Sorry, that is incorrect. $4,750 was the wager. That leaves you with 150. Let's go to Greg Mayer now. He had 7,300. He selected St. Andrew's cross. Yes, Nova Scotia, Scotland, St. Andrew. You're right. You add $990 to your $7,300, and that takes you to $8,290 as we go to Kathy Hoagland. She was leading with an even $10,000. Did she come up with the cross of St. Andrews? She picked St. George. That's the cross of England. And so it will cost you $4,601, so you drop down to second place. And Greg Meyer, congratulations. $8,290 for you as you become the new Jeopardy champion. Great way to end the week, isn't it? All right, we're going to say goodbye, folks. Have a good week. And that was uh, the Jeopardy! program that aired this past Friday, coast to coast. And uh, Greg Mayer from uh, Racine was the winner. Okay, now, Greg, you were in second place. You were in the middle among the contestants going into that final Jeopardy. Had you worked it all out what your strategy was going to be? Yeah, I had thought very carefully about what my strategy should be if I was in second place um, going in, into final Jeopardy. And it depends upon what the category was. If it was a category I was very confident with, I was going to bet everything. Um, so, for example, if the category had been reptile, I would have bet everything. Um, and that's, of course, the best you can do. Sure. The problem being in second place is that the person in first, if they get it right and they bet enough, there's nothing you can do. You can't beat them. Um, and with the category flags, it wasn't the category I was very confident in. So I decided not to go for the bet everything strategy, um, but rather a strategy I had thought about ahead of time, which was, if the person in first bets enough to beat me if I double my score, okay, which is why, and that's exactly what she did. Doubling my score would have given me 14,600. If she had been right, she would have had 14,601. So she did bet that strategy. So I was gambling that that's the strategy that she was going to follow. Um, and so if she did that, if I got it right, it doesn't matter. So I, the only thing to count on was that she would get it wrong. So what I did was figure, okay, she bets that much and she gets it wrong. What does that bring her down to? And then what I then did was bet enough so that even if I got it wrong, I would still wind up with more than her. So I had bet a strategy where as long as she gets it wrong, I win regardless. Now, afterwards, I recalculated and realized that my quick calculation was slightly off. And in fact, I, I didn't make exactly the correct bet um, for the strategy I was following. I was off by $100 or something like that. I, I forget what the exactly correct number would have been. Um, but, but I had thought carefully about it, which was that um, count on them betting enough to beat me if I double, uh, count on them getting it wrong, um, and then betting enough to beat them whether I got it wrong or right. And that's the strategy I followed, and, and it, it worked because she did get it wrong. If she'd gotten it right, there's nothing I could have done because um, she could always have beaten me, even mm -hmm. if I had doubled. Did you get the impression, talking with other people who were contestants, that they had perhaps worked out their strategy equally well in advance? Um, no, I didn't, actually. Um, get the impression that they had thought very carefully about betting strategy. They did discuss it with us. That is, the, the production people did discuss betting strategy a little bit with us. And the one specific strategy that they, that they sort of taught us was how to ensure to come in second place, and uh, which wasn't a strategy I was especially interested in. Yeah, you get easy off for coming in second. Well, well actually, you, it was usually a trip to either Mexico or the Caribbean. Oh, really? Um, for, for, for coming in second. And... Um, 
I, however, in general, was not especially interested in coming in second. I figured, well, I might as well go for it. If, mm-hmm. if, if, if you're there, you know, go for the goal um, <laughs> rather than the trip to Mexico City. And, uh, and actually, having come in third on the, on the second day, I'm actually more happy, I think, with the 25-inch color TV than a trip to Mexico City, actually. I have the TV forever. The trip would have been just a brief time. Um, I didn't get the impression that they had thought all that carefully. However, on the second day, the fellow who did win did play the second-place strategy. And if I had anticipated that he was going to play the second-place strategy, then I could have done something differently. I would have bet less, figuring that he was betting less. I could have bet less and perhaps, uh, perhaps have won. The thing is that I did not think carefully. As I mentioned, I thought carefully what to do if I was in second. I had not made a, pre, a, a careful plan ahead of time of what to do if I was in first. And that's why I made, in fact, the same bet that my opponent on the Friday had done. That is, I bet enough to beat the second place person if they doubled. Um, whereas if I had guessed that rather than doing that, that he was following a second-place strategy, I would have bet much less and, in fact, would have won. But there was a, another consideration, which was that the category Scottish inventors, the only, well, I could think of a couple of Scottish <laughs> inventors, and one of whom was Alexander Graham Bell, who was born in Scotland, uh, later lived in both Canada and the U.S., and uh, all three countries like to claim him as their own. Hmm. And I know that they often have Canadian questions in, uh, in Jeopardy. Alex being uh, a Canadian. Alex yeah. being a Canadian. And uh, I had won on a Canadian question the day before. That's uh, right, the, the, Nova the, Scotia. the flag of Nova Scotia. Yeah. So I also was thinking, boy, I'd really hate to lose on a question which the answer is Alexander Graham Bell because I didn't bet enough. And so that consideration combined with the... Uh, uh, the fact that I had not carefully worked out the strategy ahead of time, I fell back to that, okay, I'll count on him getting it right and betting, to, to betting the pot. Um, and it turns out that uh, he didn't get it right and he didn't get the pot and therefore I lost. <laughs> what was the question for Final Jeopardy the second day? Uh, the, the question for, for um, uh, the second day, the category was Scottish inventors. And the question was, or the, the answer was, in 1815, he was appointed Inspector of Roads in Bristol, England. And the answer is John McAdam, the inventor of the macadamized road, a sort of an early form of asphalt. Um, and I just had no clue. Um, the answer, in fact, both the winner and I had the same answer. James Watt, who, who uh, was a Scottish inventor, uh, the right time period, Vaguely involved in transportation, perhaps, um, but of course wrong. The person who did get it right was the one who wound up in second place, who had not been doing well through most of the show. Um, he had been raised in England, and so therefore was perhaps oh, quite familiar sure. Sure. with uh, the history of uh, English invention and road inspectors. And so he got it right and wound up in second place in winning the trip to Mexico City, um, you know, coming back actually quite nicely after having been down, very down very much throughout the whole game to finish in second place. Um, and so his education, having been raised in England, perhaps gave him a bit of an advantage on Scottish inventors. <laughs> I was thinking of Watt, too, but the name wouldn't come to me. All I could think of was Fulton, who invented the steam ship. The steam ship, yes. Uh, and I was trying to think of other Scottish inventors, and Scottish scientists kept coming into my head, not quite inventors. Um, but Watt and Bell were the two that occurred to me, and I realized, well, if it's either of those two is the correct answer, everyone is going to get it right. And that also influenced me towards making the larger bet. Um, as it turned out, it was a more difficult question, at least what I thought was a more difficult question uh, about McAdam. Um, and so I made the bet that I did. Do they shoot the shows straight through, if you will, tape them straight through in um, real time? Pretty much. They're, they're taped pretty much in real time. That is, they take a break exactly as long <coughs> as the commercial break during the shooting. Um, the only time they stop tape is just be- before Final Jeopardy. They do give you a little extra time to decide upon your wager. Okay, so you do have a few. Uh, you have more than a minute. It's a few minutes for calculating. In fact, they say they'll give you as much time as you want. But of course, at a certain point, they come walk and stand next to you, waiting for you to see what your what mm-hmm. your uh, wager is going to be. And so there is still pressure there. There's a little more time, but otherwise they shoot straight through, unless there should be some glitch sure. in in it. Um, one time, a monitor malfunctioned. Uh, in the middle of, of one of the, the shows, and they had to stop tape and then 
sort of splice it together afterwards. But aside from that planned break where they give you a little bit longer time to do uh, your wagering for Final Jeopardy, it's taped in real time. It's taped straight through. The break that you get is exactly the length of the commercial break, during which time the makeup person comes out and, you know, mops your brow. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the contestant production people, who are the ones that, that you've been dealing with the whole time, they come out, they give you a glass of water, they coach you. If, if you're not ringing in, for example, in the second show, the person in the middle, Stephen, was having a hard time ringing in, as those who watch the show may have noticed. Uh, it wasn't that he didn't know these questions. In fact, I think most of the contestants know most of the answers. It's a question of whether or not you can ring in. And he was having trouble ringing in, and so they kept coming in coaching him on how to ring in, because they want it to be sort of even. They sure. don't want someone to be, uh, uh, to be wiped out. And uh, giving other advice, you know, and a glass of water and fixing up your makeup and that kind of thing. And then they disappear. You know, the, the stage manager starts, you know, counting down 10, 9, 8, and mm -hmm. they disappear, and then boom, you're right back on. Why does everyone's handwriting look so lousy on the? Uh, well, you're 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 writing with a you're writing with a, uh, uh, writing with a, a, a light stylus on a computer screen, and it's kind of like writing with a not very good large felt tip marker, and no one's <laughs> handwriting looks very good when working with a with a poorly made large felt tip marker, uh, but it's not. It's all electronic but it has the effect of being a large felt-tip marker. Okay. How much did you win cash? Uh, I won $8,290 the first day, as uh, Alex said just a few minutes ago on the tape. And did you get the check yet? No. Uh, really? It takes, uh, I think they say, three or four months after the airing is when you will receive, or within three or four months after the airing is when you will re receive uh, whatever your winnings were. Um, in addition to the uh, cash that you get, the, only the winner gets the cash. Everyone else, even if they have, you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars, they don't get the ten or fifteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars. They get the second place prize, which on the week I was there was mostly trips to the Caribbean or Mexico, or the second place, uh, sorry, the third place prize, which I don't know what it usually was. I wasn't paying attention, uh, but for the day that I came in third, it was a twenty-five inch color TV. Oddly enough, a Magnavox, not a Sony, despite <laughs> the fact that it's filmed and owned by Sony Pictures. Um, and then you also get, you know, a year's supply of Geritol and a year's supply of uh, uh, Mop and Glow and various <laughs> things like that. I may be exaggerating. It's perhaps not quite a year's supply, but you get a, a whole bunch of these things, uh, which everyone gets, the so-called parting gifts. Um, plus, you get electronic versions of the game. You know, you mm -hmm. get the home version of the game um, to take with you. So that's what you get. Everyone gets the parting gifts um, and the home version of the game, and then whichever position you came in, you either get the dollars, the trip, or the third place prize, which in my case was a television. I think it's not always a television, like sometimes it might be a washer and dryer or something like that. I, I don't actually know what the third place prize usually hmm. is. You didn't get any daily doubles, did you? I didn't uh, I got one. You got the actually, last? Actually, in, in, um, in the second show, the show that aired on Monday, right. I got a daily double on uh, the Low Countries. Uh, That's right. And, and in fact, it was, it was a uh, one that I needed. Uh, I mean, ultimately, of course, I lost that, that game, but uh, it was one that I needed because I'd been leading all along, and then um, uh, uh, Jim from Ohio, the legal editor who, finally, who eventually did win, then had a very good run in double jeopardy and uh, did get um, one of the daily doubles uh, and went ahead of me considerably by a thousand or more, I think, uh, more than a thousand, in fact, uh, almost a couple thousand. Um, by getting a daily double right. And then right after that, I hit a daily double um, and bet, I think, a couple of thousand and then able to catch back up to him. And then we kind of, you know, we're very close into the very end. We were very, we were still very close. I was only a, maybe a thousand dollars ahead of him, maybe a little more than a thousand dollars ahead of him um, going into uh, Final Jeopardy. But I did only get one. The day I won, I didn't get a single right. uh, daily double. Um, and I was lucky that um, those who did get them, at least one of them, got them wrong. In fact, it was, I, I thought for sure that the European history expert was going to get the question about the Habsburgs right. But uh, fortunately, he didn't um, <laughs> and uh, uh, kept me in the game. So now that you've been on the show, have you, have you stopped taping it? Have you stopped watching it? Or uh, I, well, do you watch it with new interest now? Well, uh, I have watched it several times uh, since. Um, I've been taping it regularly this week, um, not just 
the shows that I was on, but also the shows that the people I met were on. I thought right. it'd be nice to sort of, you know, have mm -hmm. a record of the week of the people I met. Um, although we're uh, opponents while we're there, uh, once you're on or once you lose, um, you're no longer opponents. Um, so I'm interested, you know, to keep a record of, of how they did all the people who I'd met and chatted with over, over the course of a couple of days. And I'm still going to continue taping today, actually, to find out, because I don't know what happened to the person who beat me yesterday. Hmm. Um, that he continued taping, um, and I could have stayed in the audience and watched the taping, but I had uh, other colleagues to see in Los Angeles at the uh, County Natural History Museum, so I left the studio right away. As soon as I lost that first game, uh, I left to go see some uh, some colleagues and take care of some business in Los Angeles. So I don't know what happened to him. So, so uh, uh, people who uh, want to know what happens uh, um, should tune in today, and I will be tuning in today to find out what happens, and perhaps for the if he, as long as he keeps winning, I'll keep taping. Okay. <laughs> uh, would you do anything different? Your game strategy, your preparation, anything? Uh, yeah, I would think more carefully about how to bet if you're ahead, uh, especially if you're not that sure of the category. As with Scottish inventors, I felt even worse with Scottish inventors than I did for flags. I was not very confident about flags. Scottish inventors, I was even more dubious about. Um, so I would think much more carefully about the strategy, what to do when you're ahead. The strategy which I followed, which is the strategy that the person the day before followed, is a strategy to follow when either the category is easy, that you think everyone's going to get it right. But if you think it's tougher, and especially if you think the person in second thinks it's tougher, so that they're not going to bet everything, um, then you should follow the strategy which I'd considered doing but didn't uh, which is um, to plan on them coming in second. That is, that the second, place, second place person is betting to beat the third place person. Um, and then if you plan their betting that, then you can bet less. And then if you, even if you get it wrong, you can still win. Um, had I done that, for example, had I bet much less the second day, even though I got it wrong, I still could have won. So that's what I would do different. Okay. Greg, thanks so much. It, it's, been, uh, it's been fascinating hearing about your experiences as a, a champion and a contestant on, uh, on Jeopardy. And, of course, uh, we're going to have you back uh, some one of these days. We'll talk about some more scientific stuff. I'd be happy to, Okay, Thanks Greg, for having me. Thank you, as always. Gregory Mayer, Assistant Professor of Biological Sciences at UW-Parkside, and uh, uh, last Friday was the champion on the Jeopardy program that was broadcast and uh, was uh, also a contestant on the Monday Jeopardy program. And our thanks... Uh, to uh, Greg Mayer for coming around and uh, uh, telling us just what it was like to be a contestant on Jeopardy on the morning show today here on WGTD.